Okay, welcome to episode two, season two of the Blues Brothers podcast with myself, George Harris, and as always, co-host Charlie Patrick, the show that discusses football and all things Chelsea FC with debates, analysis, questions, and lots more made by the fans for the fans. And we have a very special treat in store for you all today. We're joined on the show by a man who was labelled the Chelsea Insider for over 30 years. TV presenter on the in-house channel Chelsea TV, a match day pitch announcer and an integral part of the Chelsea framework, entertaining fans with his dramatic lineup announcements on match day and his rapport with the players, staff and fans alike. Our guest today is also an author and currently host of a very popular sports channel, The Football Show and much more. We are extremely honoured and delighted to welcome Neil Barnett to the Blues Brothers podcast. Neil, how are you doing, first of all? I think that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said about me. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh what a kick-off. <laughs> how are you doing? Are grand, you said- grand. And I, I, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I stopped working with Chelsea in 2018 when they elbowed me out finally, uh, having been trying to do it for God knows how many years. And... Um, and uh, I rediscovered the addiction of just watching it from from the crowd. I still go in the press box uh, at a lot of games for, for my radio show in America, but 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 I love going in the crowd and just being part of it all. It's 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 the same as it was when I went to my first game, age six. Well, yeah, thank you so much for your for your time as well. And obviously, it's it's just nice to speak to you in person because we've seen you on so many occasions from afar. I mean, I, I called you personally on on Chelsea TV. I used to do that all went live from Stamford Bridge um, when when guests were on. And obviously, we used to see you in the stands likewise on match days. You know, with the announcements. So, um, yeah, how how does it feel being now on on the other side of that with with Chelsea and being a fan and, and taking it all in? I mean, how often do you go to the games, etc.? I go to every game, home and away. Uh, it feels liberating, to be honest. Uh, it, it got very um, corporate and uh, not my pint of bitter, uh, the way it was being done. And I wasn't there, glass of Prosecco, uh, the way it was being done either. And it was just nice to get out. Yeah, well, we still miss it greatly. I mean, it was great memories for us. Um, some Thank of you. your unique calling outs of uh, players' names and fans responding um yeah marvelous um so we, we kick things off as usual neil and charlie with today's show um after looking at a fantastic back end of last season winning our second champions league title in porto i'm interested neil, to get your current thoughts on the chelsea side now with with tuchel's first season in charge um and your thoughts on the business of the summer um do you believe this squad is now fully equipped to push and win for the premier league title for the first time um, football's changed so much in the last 15 years, 20 years. Uh, one of the things that you can never be sure of with any club now is who is building the squad. Um, now, if you look at Manchester City, for instance, you can be fairly convinced uh, that with Serrano as their uh, uh chief executive in charge of football and with Trixie Bergenstein, the the director of football, you know how the strings are being pulled. Uh, if you look at Tottenham... <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, always a pleasant thought. If you look at Tottenham, uh, Daniel Levy, we know, is making all the decisions and getting a lot of them wrong. Um, and if you look at Chelsea, you don't really often know who is making the decisions. 
you know, who did buy Danny Drinkwater? Was it really uh, Antonio Conte? Who did buy Timway Bakayoko? Who did buy Alvaro Morata? Because I'm pretty convinced that wasn't uh, Antonio Conte. There's a lot of people who used to say, uh, oh, he signed him for Juventus. Of course he wants him for Chelsea. But actually the summary signed for Juventus was the summary walked out and he never managed him at Juventus. Um, so, I, I, and the first person he wanted to sign when he got to Inter was Romelu Lukaku, who was the other player that we were in for that summer. So I think, I think it's never been clear at Chelsea just who is having the final say on recruitment. And over the last few years, I have really since we got rid of Diego Costa, uh, and who did do that? Was it Diego Costa or was it Antonio Conte? But ever since we got rid of him, uh, I felt that we haven't had a balanced starting 11. You can have a deep squad and a strong squad, but no balanced starting 11. And, and Costa used to run onto those little threaded balls from Eden Hazard and William and Pedro and Cesc Fabregas and smash them in the net. And Morata couldn't do that. He wanted the Azpilicueta crosses, but not just from Azpilicueta, from, from Pedro, Hazard, Fabregas and, and William, and he never got them. Um, and, and, uh, and, and instead, he was spent half his life with his back to goal, waiting for threaded passes and falling over when anybody said boo, going home and crying to his wife who put something up on Instagram, all lovey-dovey, God, that drove me up the wall. And or he... Um, he uh, just fell over, didn't he? I mean, he, God, he just drove you up. Oh, but Morata's a, a top international player and it, it just didn't fit the way our personnel were. I think Lukaku will fit the way our personnel are. But over the last year, I have absolutely, or three years, four years, I have absolutely no doubts that we haven't had a balanced starting 11. Now, my big question on that is, and, and this is the evidence that I think we need, is when Maurizio Sarri was signed, and, and you know, Sarri ran a really entertaining team at Napoli, a really good and entertaining team at Napoli, who on a low budget uh, gave Juventus a run for their money for a couple of years. When, when teams in Italy don't beat Juventus, I know Inter did last year, but when teams in Italy don't beat Juventus and they say, oh, you know, same old story, Juventus's salary budget was an average of 10 million pounds, 10 million euros a player. Second was Roma, believe it or not, on 5 million euros. And third, until Conte went there, was Inter Milan, on four and a half million euros. And here was Sarri's Napoli challenging Juventus for the title. I mean, it was quite some achievement, which I don't think was necessarily registered. But what I do think is we know pretty well who, who signs the managers, and, and that's Roman Abramovich. And I've got to say that Chelsea's signing of managers has been a lot more successful than signing of players, especially expensive players down the years. But, but, Sari came in and he wanted the guy who he felt made Napoli tick, Jorginho. Now, did anybody at Chelsea say, OK, but if you want Jorginho, what are you going to do with Kante? And for two years, we saw N'Golo Kante play on the right side of a midfield three 
with great dignity and great enthusiasm, getting ahead of the ball as much as possible to try and create in the attacking third, when he has absolutely no assets in that attacking third, great assets to get there and find the space, but when the ball gets there, no assets in that attacking third, and not surprisingly, our goals dried up. Jorginho's never scored hardly a goal in his life, except from penalties. We signed Kovacic, who is definitely a number eight and not a number six, except that he never makes a goal or scores a goal. And now we have Kante playing number eight, who never scores a goal or makes a goal. And, and we didn't, we just, we didn't look a team. Um, and it wasn't until, now, Frank Lampard inherited that situation, brought in kids and brought a completely new identity uh, to the club, which we all loved, or most of us loved. And, and, and you know, I, I don't think, I don't think people realise how hard it is in football to bring kids through. And Chelsea did brilliantly and he did brilliantly and the kids did brilliantly uh, in, in that period. Um, and, and when you think just how many there were, Reese James, Andreas Christensen often gets forgotten. I, I first knew Andreas when he was 15 when he came over. Um, uh, Fikayo Tamori. Uh, and, um, obviously, Mason Mount. Uh, Tammy Abraham. I, I mean, just so, so many were playing regularly. Ruben Loftus-Cheek was in and around it uh, uh, after Sari as well, Callum Hudson-Odoi. Uh, it was just, it was an incredible time. And, and we had a spirit. We had a spirit. And, and Tammy got sufficient goals to give us something. But we, we weren't a team. We weren't a team. Under Sari, we were the, well, let's go back. The first year after we lost Diego Costa under Conte, people forget this, Conte qualified uh, won the Premier League. The following season, he won the FA Cup. But it's one of the two seasons we didn't qualify for the Champions League under Roman. Um, so he went because we didn't have a balanced team. Uh, Sari came in, and we were about six with in March, and absolutely no chance of getting into the top four. And then Tottenham blew up, and Arsenal blew up, uh, and, and um, Manchester United blew up. That was, uh, that was the year that um, Solskjaer, I think, took over at Manchester United. Uh, and um, and uh, in the last 10 games, David De Gea gave away about a goal a game and they didn't qualify for the Champions League as, as a result. Um, most expensive, most expensive goalkeeper salary-wise in the Premier League. And, and David De Gea is third equal uh, on Chelsea assists in between 2010 and 2020 behind Eden Hazard and Cesc Fabregas level with Hugo Lloris I love them um, but um, but uh, we came third by generosity of teams who aren't good enough and under Frank we, we came fourth by generosity of teams who weren't good enough and under Thomas Tuchel who who came up with this new way of playing or this new shape of playing. We came fourth because Leicester threw away a 2-1 lead at home to Tottenham and lost 4-2. If, if they'd have 
if they'd have got something out of that game, we, we wouldn't have qualified for the Champions League. Now, the lovely thing about Thomas Tuchel is he says that now. When people say your favourites, he said, we only got in the Champions League because other teams let us. Now, of course, we, we got, would have got it in, in it in the end because we won the Champions League. But it comes back to the point that we haven't been balanced. Now, what he's come up with is a different shape. We all know that Jorginho is not the greatest defensive player in the world. But with Kante next to him, it's still the case, I think, that you couldn't play with two central defenders in the back four. I think you need three central defenders to cover a weakness there. But at the same time, we all know that Christensen is better in a back three, that Rudiger is better in a back three, and probably that Thiago Silva is now, at his age, better in a back three. So suddenly it looks a team. But we need someone to score goals, and that hasn't been happening. And, and in Tuchel's era, we haven't scored enough goals. But we've conceded so few, not so many team sheets, we've got away with it. Will Romelu Lukaku bring in the goals? But I'll, I'll just finish this whole long monologue, indulgent monologue, by saying this. Most popular shape of this century is 4-3-3. And if you look at 4-3-3, and I'm not just talking about Chelsea and all those trophies we won in the, in the noughties and everything. I'm not just looking at Chelsea. I'm looking at World Cups and, uh, and at uh, Champions Leagues and, and Barcelona and Real Madrid, what have you. It's 4-3-3. And, and if you look at 4-3-3, you basically have your number six, your defensive midfielder, and two offensive midfielders, two number eights, and three forwards. So you have five creative players plus your fullbacks. That's how Manchester City play. To a certain extent, although their, their midfield's not that creative, that's how Liverpool play. That's how Real Madrid and Barcelona before, before Koeman went there. That's how they play. Um, but I mean it have the number 10 with Muller, who's one of the few proper number 10s in the world. But, but that's how most of the top teams play. If you play 3-4-2-1, as, as we played under Conte and as we're now playing under Thomas Tuchel, you have your back five, your three central defenders and your two number sixes. You have your wing backs, but they're really just full backs slightly advanced, unless you're playing Callum there. But that really, they're just full backs slightly advanced. And you only have three creative players, your two number 10s, your two, or inside forwards, as people in my generation would call them, and your centre forward. And if they're not scoring goals, you are effed. And when we won the league so wonderfully under Conte, you've got to remember that one of our inside forwards was Eden Hazard. And the Chelsea tactics, the Chelsea way of playing in those days was not the Pep Guardiola way of pass, 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 pass until you create an, an overload or until you get your best players one against one in the uh, attacking third. Our way of playing was get the ball to Eden Hazard as quickly as you can. Uh, don't ask him to do any defending. Just leave him out there. Get it to him as quickly as you can. One against four and hope he does something. Let's face it, that was how we played. And when he had Pedro and Costa up there with him, it didn't have work for a while, but it ran out of steam. And I look at it now and I still think 
this is a part-time shape to get our best players in and to get us playing. But in the end, will we get enough goals? Will we create enough? Now, if you really get your wing-backs playing, yes, you can, which is why we went for Hakimi, who last season, despite how well Reese played and, and, and Aspie played and what have you, Hakimi was the best wing back, right wing back in the world last season. Um, and and, um, and uh, he made goals and scored goals. And you, you, if you don't have that, you won't get enough. But if you have Lukaku, you get 25 anyway. So, Yeah, no, it's fascinating insight, Now, I have to, have to agree. I do agree with a lot of the points you've made there. I think particularly last season, it was quite evident that obviously the change in shape from Tuchel was purely to fit the players we've got, I don't think he, I think that was the main reason we sort of went with that, with that three at the back, five at the back, whatever you call it. And you do sacrifice a lot in terms of amount of attacking players on the pitch. Um, I still think in terms of the mid, the balance in the midfield, I'm still a little bit unsure whether we need Kante and Jorginho both in the same team. If you're going to play Kante, I think you can afford to play someone who's a little bit more expressive, that like gets a little bit further forward. Someone like Mason Mount, do you, do you think Mason Mount can do a job in, in a midfield two? Mason though? Mount, from the age of 15, was an out-and-out out number eight. He wasn't mm. a number 10. Now, the amazing thing about Mason now, is he 22 now, is mm. that he's added a yard to his game. It's the first yard as well, so he can get away uh, uh, from challenges. Can't really get away after that, but can get away from challenges. And I'll tell you what else he's added to his game is a trick. So he can mm. he can get away from lots of challenges uh he is he is i thought in the game against crystal palace he was head and shoulders the best player on the pitch um alonso had a terrific game trevor chaloba ah but um but mason mount was head and shoulders the best player on the pitch but from 15 he was an out and out number eight he was a midfielder and if you look at his i mean football's now so fluid that you can't really call someone a number six and someone a number 10. Uh, it's, it's far more subtle than that. But if you look at the, the winning goal in the Champions League final, it is fun saying that, isn't it? If you look at the winning yeah. goal in the Champions <laughs> League final, his contribution was a number eight's contribution, even though mm. he was playing number 10. He dropped deep. He got the ball off the fullback, the wingback, he got, and he turned. Uh, he got a square ball off him, and he turned, and he hit a midfielder's world-class pass, helped by the lack of a defensive midfielder, number six on the opposition side, but that wasn't his fault. It was Pep Guardiola's fault. And and uh, it was, but it was, that to me is his position. But I have to say that he's, he's, he's made a lot out of the number 10 role anyway. But, but for me, uh, he's Frank Lampard. Yeah, I think I think it would be it would be interesting to see him deployed in a slightly deeper role within that system, just to see, um, just to see how that works and give us a slightly different option in there, just to get like an extra attacking player on the pitch. But you know, in terms of the top end of the pitch, obviously well documented last season that despite the amount of chances we created and the success we had, we had a real struggle putting the ball in the net. Um, do you, are you firstly before I come on to Lukaku? Are you? I know I feel a little bit disappointed in in a sense that not more materialised with the pursuit of Erling Haaland. Did you, are you disappointed that that didn't really come to fruition or are you quite happy that we've ended up with Lukaku anyway? There are a lot of issues around Erling Haaland. I, I think he is 
absolutely flipping brilliant. Um, I was in Salzburg for the friendly when he played against us, and I don't remember him. <laughs> I remember Minamino, who scored a couple of goals before he went to Liverpool. I remember him. I, Harlan never really made an impression on me, but obviously I saw the name and knew he was. But I know Jesse Marsh, who was who's now the Leipzig manager, uh, who was the uh, um, Salzburg manager then. Uh, and he he's just massively full of praise for him. Uh, and and um, I think that, look, it would have been in many ways a better investment to get a 20-year-old than a 28-year-old. I think, I think uh, within, out in any way, disrespecting Romelu, whom I love and respect and think is brilliant, I think Haaland's got a little bit more to his game. Except that he didn't get the goals for Norway in the European qualifiers. And Odegaard, by the way, mostly wasn't in the starting eleven for Norway in the European qualifiers. So good luck, Arsenal. <laughs> um, and uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, the Borussia Dortmund um, director of football, who uh, begins with Z, his name Oh, yeah, Marcel. I think it's someone, Zorg. Yeah, Zorg. Yeah. Who, who is obviously a genius because they, they sell all their best players to buy Munich and then buy more and still get in the Champions League. But he said, you can leave a club and go to a big club too early. Uh, he said, when Lewandowski left us and went to Bayern Munich, he was the finished article and he went straight in the team. But when Ismane Dembele left us and went to Barcelona, he left too early. He wasn't the finished article and he struggled ever since. Now, uh, I I went to see a game um, for my work, a Champions League match day six group stage game, Real Madrid versus um, Borussia Dortmund. I really went to see Christian Pulisic because I've got because um, I've I've got this American radio program, uh, who was eighteen at the time and looked fifteen, um, and and in this uh, in this crazy atmosphere. Or lack of atmosphere at times, that has to be said in the Bernabeu. Uh, uh, he, he, funny enough, he was just getting into the game and really beginning to impress Christian when the flipping Borussia Dortmund manager, what was his name? Oh, Thomas Tuchel, uh, took him off. Um, and, but he put on a world-class player, Marco Royce. Uh, and Marco Royce went to number 10. Now, the number 10 was, I think, just a year older than Christian. And that was Osmane Dembele. And whereas Christian looked a little bit like a schoolboy, Dembele looked like a flipping world-class player. And he came out to the right wing to play where Christian had been when Royce came on. And he was brilliant. Uh, now, if you followed Chelsea closely, you'd have known about Dembele like I did because he was a year younger than Jeremy Boga when Boga went on loan to Rennes. And he took... He took Jeremy's place in, in the team. Jeremy couldn't get a game. Be, uh, and he was our best youth player for years, Jeremy Boga, but he couldn't get a game. Uh, and and uh, so this, this Dembele was something special. But going to Barcelona was, was, was um, a move too big for him too soon. And we don't know with Erling Haaland. We don't know um, because we don't know him. But so the question is, First question is, is he ready? The second question, which you must never, ever forget, is that his agent is Mina Raiola. 
and Chelsea have never done business with Mino Raiola. And speaking from completely personal terms, I hope we bloody never do. What a horrible piece of meat he is. Now, there's been a lot of talk out of this absolutely inexcusable, evil Super League stuff. And the money that is going out of the game and the, the failure of clubs uh, to make ends meet which is a lot of a lot of crap if clubs aren't making ends meet it's because they're being run badly get rid of the bastards running them but the biggest bastards of all are the agents and football has never ever got to grips with this and if donnarumma is going on the free transfer from ac milan to paris saint germain and joining hakimi i'm making a pretty strong lineup over there and the, the word on the street is that uh, Mino Raiola got 30 million euros for that move himself. 30 million. I, I mean, where, that's money out the game. That's money out the game. No wonder clubs are struggling. Sort the agents out. Now, I just want to finish with this point. The agents came into the game because nobody was looking after the flipping footballers. You get clubs giving a contract, a massive big contract to some kid who, who, who had never had three and six to put in his pocket. And they just say, well done, pat him on the ass and send him on his way. They didn't go next door and see a financial advisor supplied by the club. They didn't have someone saying, look, son, let's open an account. You know, what do you want to do? Do you want to put money aside to start saving to buy a property for your parents? you know build build a way forward and they all just going out and bought the most expensive motor they could get uh because who wouldn't when you live their lifestyle footballers weren't looked after when money came into the game by the clubs they were just the opposite they were resented and then business people moved in and then they were just assets they needed agents but the agents are, are treating them as assets as well horrible horrible but then what do you think about the Harry Kane situation? Because we, we know that he's represented by, by his brother and, um, you know, signing a, a six-year contract with uh, supposedly no release clause in there so that if, if a fee did come up that he wouldn't be able to leave. I mean, how do you, how do you feel that that situation's transpired? Because it looks well, like... Well, I, I, little... I think everybody is really uh, hypocritical over issues like Harry Kane because you get the old Matt Letizia... He was, he was never, ever ambitious enough. Uh, he should have left Southampton uh, or, 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 or else you get the uh, oh, Winston Bogart, the only sta stayed for the money. So whatever a player does, if a player's earning a lot of money, he's always going to be resented by the public. What do I think about Harry Kane? Uh, I think his obsession with uh, American football is... Um, really a little sick um i think it's an absolutely dreadful sport i interviewed harry kane uh, uh a couple of years ago for um for my radio show uh and uh, the uh, boston patriots had just won the nfl again with tom brady and he'd gone over for the super bowl and he was at the uh party the celebration party afterwards and i 
he'd given me a lot of time and he was pleasant and I just didn't quite have the balls on that occasion to say and how did you find it did you enjoy being at a celebration party to win a trophy because it's not really something you've ever experienced before is it <laughs> but, <laughs> but I just I just on that occasion I decided to respect the situation and not do it um I I think that Manchester City desperately need a number nine desperately, desperately the number nine. I think they got away with it last year. Um, if you look, I used to do a thing, when I was when I was editor of Onside, the, the club magazine before the glossy magazine of, of recent times, at the end of every season, I used to do a thing called the team to make you scream and which got the players to choose the best 90 minute performances against us that season. Not the best players, but just the best performances of the season. And I still do it in my head for a bit of fun. Uh, and the best centre forward against Chelsea last season, 2020-21, uh, was Kevin De Bruyne at Stamford Bridge when that Manchester City beat us 3-1. He pulled us every bloody which way. But please don't tell me that Kevin De Bruyne is a good centre forward because he's not. And please don't tell me that Kevin De Bruyne, which breaks my heart, is the best, isn't the best midfielder in the world because he is. Um, and and Manchester City need to get a proper number nine is going to give them a little bit of a better shape and a little bit of a more uh, penalty area focal point and presence, and they need to get De Bruyne playing in his best position. So Harry Kane, who is a pet kind of player because he's not a static number nine, would be perfect for them. Um I thought they might go for Arturo Martinez, uh, Romelu's partner at Inter, but I'm told he's not as good as people think he is, and that's probably why he hasn't gone for him. I mean, there's rumours that they want Lewandowski now. And... Yeah, I think um, but I come out today, Sky yeah. Sports reporting that obviously Lewandowski is looking for a new challenge, but obviously at 32 years of age and Bayern Munich... 33 wanting, this month. Yeah, and Bayern Munich wanting over £100 million pounds from him. It's just, not, it's just not good value for money. But just the last thing on the Kane thing, I just think... You know, on his behalf, I know he obviously is a top player and he wants, he wants that big move to, to win trophies, which doesn't look like happening at Spurs whatsoever. But I just feel there's a massive naivety on his part that in the prime of his career at 25, to sign a six-year contract with no, with no get-out partway through that if we aren't in the Champions League or we aren't winning trophies, that yeah. I can leave for X amount of money. I know what you mean. I just I know what you mean. put that in but because Jack Grealish has got, obviously, when he signed the new Aston Villa contracts, obviously Christian Perslow come out and explained in his video to the fans that Jack insisted that there was a hundred million pound clause in that if Aston Villa weren't playing Champions League football and someone offered that money, then he could leave. I just feel that Kane has obviously signed that deal and he must have signed that deal on reassurances from Daniel Levy that Tottenham are going to invest in the club, invest in the players and put a team together that can challenge for league titles and get into, into you know, latter stage of the Champions League and to sign a contract with no reassurances of that, with no get out for a player of his quality. I just think it's a massively naive on his behalf. And then to sort of think that Daniel Levy would honour a gentleman's agreement as well. I think he's just been very naive to, to think that Levy will just let him go. He may have been, uh, but I think it's pretty horrible on, on the part of Tottenham mm. also. I, I mean, the fact is, when he signed that contract, they were regularly in the mm. Champions League and they got to the final of it. Um, so it was a bit different, but I, I, I agree with what you say. On the other hand... Uh, I don't think Tottenham have much of a chance of 
qualifying for the Champions League with him. So I'm not sure why they want to keep him. Um, and given that his ankles have turned him, his ankle injuries seem to have turned him into a slightly different player from the beast that used to tear us apart with Dele Alli behind him, who has definitely become a different player. I mean, he's not just grown his hair, Dele Alli, but he's he's grown his he's grown his body, hasn't he? Don't you think he's about twice the weight he used to be? Nobody says that. He's very heavy compared to how he used to be, Dele Alli. Um, and and um, it's a it, it, it's a different team, and, and he's a different player. Harry Kane from what he was four years ago, three four years ago before these injuries, and uh, um, so it, it, it. God, it's so hard, isn't it, when you're when you're spending this kind of money? What you've got to remember is that Barcelona got 222 million euros for Neymar and they pissed it up against the wall on Coutinho. Uh, on, uh, and by the way, by spending it on Coutinho, they turned Liverpool into a world-class team because Liverpool weren't one before that. By spending it on Coutinho, by spending it on Dembele and by spending it on Griezmann. And um, having spent it on Griezmann, what do Atletico Madrid go and do? Uh, a year later, they take Luis Suarez, who limps across uh, Spain because he's, he, I mean, he's built like a late middle-aged man now, Luis Suarez, and then goes and is the second top scorer in Spain behind some guy called Lionel Messi, and they win the league. Oh, unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, these clubs are so badly run. So from our point of view, we, apart from 2016, which was the Jose blow-up year, followed by Gus Hilling, and 2018, which was the Conte blow-up year when we won the FA Cup anyway. We've been in the Champions League every year. And uh, the difference between the first half of Roman's reign, when we were getting into the semi-final of the Champions League almost every season, has been that we don't anymore. We don't. We've had only two years since we won it in 2012, in which we got past the round of 16. Uh, one, we got to the semi-finals when Jose came back and lost to Atletico. And secondly, we won it again, and and terrific. But but we're not the same outfit we were, but we're not bad. Yeah, being a fan on, on you know of listening to talk sport as well, a lot of Spurs fans call up and say, well, we haven't won with Harry Kane, so why not try something different? And actually, whether whether they're looking at the, just the Manchester City game in isolation, they actually say that they pay they play a better brand of football almost without Harry Kane, because there's not that that reliance on him. Whether you know, obviously. I think Spurs are still a better side with Harry Kane. I think, I think it's worth saying, I, I don't want to be talking about Tottenham on here, <laughs> but, but I, just, I, I just think it's worth saying that uh, for the most part, for, well, for quite some part, I agree with the PFA Premier League 11 last season. Uh, I thought Thiago Silva should have been in there, actually. Uh, I'd, have had, I'd have had him with uh, um, ahead of Harry Maguire with... Um, with uh, Diaz. Ruben Diaz, because Harry Maguire, if you remember, started the season uh, with a with a, a Greek island prosecution case, Mykonos prosecution case over his head, and with uh, a lot of mistakes and red cards. Well, that wasn't in the league, but it was with England. And, and uh, I thought Thiago Silva was a better player last season. And and we had this stunning defence as well after Thomas came. But but. Um, but one of the things I agreed with was that Harry Kane was the best number nine and that uh, Son Hung Min was the best left-sided player. So if you finish seventh Tottenham, 
and you've got two players rightfully in the PFA 11, your other nine players must be absolutely appalling, which they were. Uh, that's all. And by the way, I'm one of the people who say, for Christ's sake, take Tottenham out of the liquidator. Let's not have all this, we hate Tottenham. I don't hate Tottenham. I don't care about Tottenham. I kind of still, from my 1960s life, hate Leeds. But, but, but that's nostalgia. It's, it's not real passion. And, and let's get the hate out of football. We, we don't need it. And it's, it's kind of, it's a bad sign of the times. And, and I don't like it. And it's, it's small-minded and it's stupid. Yeah, I was just going to say last thing, sorry, George, before you move on. Um, I do actually think that Daniel Levy is well within his rights to demand as much money as he sees fit for Harry Kane, given the fact he's got three years left in his contract and there is no obligation for him to sell. Um, so I don't have a problem with that. But I think, yeah, I would also agree that I think Son is actually more important to Tottenham than Harry Kane is. I know Harry Kane scores all the goals, but actually I think Son offers a lot more to that, that side. So I'd arguably think he's probably more important and there's a better balance to the side when he's in the centre forward, Robbie. That's enough Enough about Spurs. Can we, um, can we well, before we leave it, can we just celebrate Kieran Trippier, who left the top... I think he only had one good season at Spurs, actually, mm. uh, because he then got in the England team in the World Cup in 2018 and followed that up with an absolutely miserable season before being sold to Atletico Madrid. Now there's this this belief that Manchester United want him. I, I just can never, ever forget that own goal that Kieran Trippier scored at the Matthew Hardy and, uh, in his last appearance for Tottenham at Chelsea. That was just, that was just one of those wonderful moments when, when it was a religious experience almost. I absolutely adore that. I mean, he just passed the ball into the net. Hugo Lloris was off picking his nails somewhere or, I don't know, or painting them, I'm not sure, but... but but it was it was it, Kieran Trippier flipping. Oh, by the way, do you realise that when we got to our first FA Youth Cup final in over fifty years, or was it over fifty years? No, just under fifty years, nineteen sixty-one, and then we got there in twenty oh eight, and we lost to Manchester City um, over two legs. That City's fullbacks were right right back Kieran Trippier, and their left back was Ben Mee, the Burnley captain. Uh, and of course, they had Daniel Sturridge at centre forward, uh, and they had um, they had that Slovakian winger Vice, uh, who was the oh, son yeah. of the Slovakia manager at the time, who's still playing for the Slovakian national team now. We have Miroslav Stock, who used to play on the other flank for for Slovakia, but he's kind of gone off the radar quite a bit. What, that was some team that Manchester City side. Yeah, I think we went to one of those games, didn't we, Charlie? Went to the FA Youth Cup. Uh, yeah, so we drew sense. one all at home. Gal yeah. Kakuta scored for us after Daniel Sturridge had scored for them. I'll yeah. tell you what, Gal Kakuta, whatever happened to him, he was going to be the next big thing. <laughs> we went to yeah. China and made a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he didn't play for France. He played for uh, the African country of his heritage, which, excuse me, but I've forgotten what that was. Uh, but he didn't win a lot of caps. He was back in France last year, um, uh, having played in Spain a little bit as well. He was back in France last year, and uh, he did not bad. He did not bad, but he never became the player that he was in the youth team. I might be tracking back slightly, uh, Neil, to the, the number nine situation. But first of all, who's your who's your favourite number nine at Stamford Bridge, and why? 
why do we seem to have a curse when it comes to the, the number nine itself? When it, because I honestly do believe the pressure of playing the number nine at Stamford Bridge is so unlike anything else. Um, nonsense. Absolute nonsense. <laughs> pressure, yeah. of pressure of playing number nine at, at all the big clubs. No, nonsense. No, uh, um, no, I'm not having that at all. Uh, th there is one secret uh, to playing, to being the centre forward. And that is, you've got to want to top the bill. You've got to want to love the spotlight. Uh, and I go back to the King, Aussie, uh, Kerry, uh, Mark Hughes, quietest man off the pitch, but my God, he loved the spotlight on it. Luca, um, Jimmy Floyd. Hasselbank, yeah. Didier, Diego Costa. They all love the spotlight. Then I look at others, who weren't as comfortable in the spotlight? Nicholas Anelka, Alvaro Morata, Fernando Torres. They never seemed to like the spotlight quite as much. And I just think that that made it harder for them to... to I think you've got to want to love yourself uh, in order to be a top, top centre forward. Um, who was the best? Uh, I am of the opinion which I know annoys a lot of people when I say it. I'm of the opinion, when people ask me who's the greatest player of all time at Chelsea, that there are four. And the reason I picked those four, all from the same team, is that team just did more than any other team in Chelsea. And they were the reason why. And the four greatest players in the history of Chelsea are Petr Cech, John Terry, Frank Lampard and Didier Drogba. So although he wore number 11, and for a couple of years, number 15, our greatest number nine was Didier Drogba. And for people old enough to have seen Aussie, and, and I count uh, Aussie as a really good friend in, in, in uh, after he gave up playing, I didn't know him when he was playing. Uh, uh, and Aussie's best years were probably with Ian Hutchinson. What a partnership that was. Uh, but Didier was Aussie and Hutch in one player. Yeah, I have to say, I, I, I'd agree. I think we've been, we have been blessed with some, you know, some top players over the years. I remember I was just to be a season ticket holder back in uh, when Mourinho first came for that first three years. Some of the football we played then was absolutely outstanding. We've obviously Didier as the focal point. Then he had the wide men, Duff, Robin, Joe Cole, Sean White Phillips in later years, Lampard, Makaleli, SCM, Balak. You know, some of the... Good Johnson. I thought Good Johnson oh, was yeah. magnificent and, under, yeah, the, under the Yeah, the blonde Maradona in that midfield three, yeah. he, was, he was something else. I think we've just been... I think we forget as Chelsea fans how lucky we've been over the years with, and, and, with what and, we've uh, had. Obviously, Cavalio at the back, but, but I think somebody who... We too easily, in our passion and addiction, hate people. Uh, and and um, I do think it's it's one of the ills of football that that people seem to think that it gives veracity or it, it gives depth to their love if they show hate. Which, by the way, if you are one of those people, is the biggest load of bollocks I've ever heard in my life in terms of philosophy. I mean, it's it's just so immature and stupid. Stop it! Stop it! Love's much better than hate. 
I love William Gallas. I used to have such arguments with Kerry Dixon about <laughs> Kerry wasn't having the way Willie Gallas left. We used to have arguments on television about it. And then we go in the pub afterwards and we carry on arguing till closing time about it. I had great evenings we carry arguing about Willie Gallas. Um, but I thought Willie Gallas was, I thought he was John Terry's best partner. Uh, he'd be in my all time Chelsea 11, Willie Gallas, ahead of Ricky Cavalier. I thought he was a hell of a player. Yeah, unbelievable. Playing a World Cup yeah. final. Yeah, yeah. And even, you know, his transformation when he had to play at left back. I mean, we all remember that cut inside and that goal against Tottenham as well. Yeah, all, yeah. But he was, he, he, was a, he was a great right back as well. Yeah. And, and even better, he was a really mediocre Arsenal player, uh, absolutely appalling Tottenham player. I mean, I just love the guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just sorry, Neil, just, uh, just going back to that number nine's briefly, just a couple of questions on one former and one current now. Um, do you think, obviously, Lukaku's well-known for his idol being Drogba? I know it's very hard to say, can he emulate what Didier's done? But do you think he can go on to achieve something similar in this second spell and be kind of like this, like the Didier Drogba for this side? Uh, I absolutely will not have comparisons between Romelu and Didier. I think I, I find them really cheap without... Uh, 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 well, I just find them cheap. And I find them a bit tasteless, you know, they're both black. Romelu used to have dreads. Oh, they must be the same player. No, they're not the same player. Uh, uh, if I was to liken... Didier was an all-round centre-forward. If I was to liken Romelu to anyone, and I'm not suggesting he's as good, but he ain't far off, I would liken him to Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, because Romelu's way of playing is to get the ball. He really wants the ball near his feet. Didier could take it in anywhere. Romelu wants it in his feet. And if he's in the middle of the park, the middle third of the park, his first act is to try and turn and charge for goal. And if he can charge for goal and keep going, that's what he'll do. And he ain't going to look up and pass the ball unless he thinks he can't get to the penalty area and get a shot away. Now, who is he most like, therefore, in the Chelsea uh, recent history is Diego Costa. He's much more like Diego Costa than he is like Didier Drogba. Yes, he idolised Didier. Yes, they've got a great relationship, and yes, there's a lovely story there. But he is a different player, and 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 with Didier, you could play almost any kind of football, and he would fit in because he could hold the ball up and link play. He could he could win the headers if it was coming in long range he could drop off and play the passes I mean he was a wonderful passer of the ball and of course he could take people on he could run in behind he could do everything he was uh as good a centre forward as the Premier League has seen uh right up there with Thierry Henry uh who only won the Champions League as a left winger with Barcelona never won it as a centre forward with Arsenal so 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 um Romelu is a different kind of player. Do I think he can bring us success? Yes, I do. Do I think he's come back at the right time for him and for us? Yes, I do. Uh, I think that he'll get a hatful of goals uh, because he knows how the Premier League is. I think he's got one more stage of development to come in his career, and that is the Didier stage where big goals in big games.
big goals in big games. Uh, so many people have said to me, are they saying this with Aussie as well, by the way? Oh, the trouble with Didier is he only turned up in the big games. He got 164 bloody goals. They weren't all big games, you morons. He turned up in other games as well. Aussie got 150 goals. They weren't all against Manchester United and Tottenham. Well, they're not big games against Tottenham anymore, whatever you think. So, um, but, um, but, so Romelu's just got a, that's the last stage of his development, I think. Uh, and, and yeah, I think, I think he can do it. I think the way we play now is suited to him with the two number 10s and, and they will feed him constantly. They will feed him. Um, uh, but I have noticed in the first couple of games of the year, we've been getting in far more crosses as well. And, Romney's good on crosses. He's 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 he he, he likes the six-yard box. Uh, and and while we're talking about the six, or while I bring out the six-yard box, can I just say, for years we lacked a presence in the six-yard box. After Frank stopped playing in 2014, we really lacked a six-yard box presence. And the guy who brought it back to us is Christian Pulisic. He, he scores a lot of his goals in the six-yard box, more than, I mean, he's got a real poacher's eye. Now, Thomas Tuchel did hint the other day that he might play two up when he gets Romelu and said it can really help Timo Werner and it can help Christian Pulisic and it can help Kai Havertz. If I was picking someone to play off Romelu Lukaku, I would look very carefully at Christian because pace but more the poachers smell the poachers smell which Timo's Timo's got the poachers smell but he's got other poachers product uh uh and Kai I don't think has got the poachers smell I think I think he's someone who wants to run onto the ball and play football um so I think they're all different players which is great for Thomas Tuchel because he can he can find out which one makes the best composition but Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah and I but, think it definitely gives us a lot of options in that top end of the pitch now. I said a physical presence in the centre-four position that we've been missing since Diego Costa left, more of an aerial presence, um, someone that can bring other players into play as well. And I think, as you said, it will benefit the likes of Timo Werner um, and Kai Havertz, Christian Pulisic, Zayec as well, who obviously I think has had a great pre-season and good, obviously good Super Cup game. Unfortunate to pick up that, that shoulder injury. But just... Uh, Quickly, Neil, just on a past number nine now, how, I've, I've noticed that the fan base has been a little bit divided on the departure of Tammy Abraham. How, 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 how do you personally feel about Tammy and his contributions to Chelsea? And do you think it was the right decision to move him on this summer? No. Um, but it may have been financially necessary. Uh, I think it was probably necessary to buy Lukaku. So, so there are issues there that we don't know the details of. Uh, I don't know why Thomas Tuchel didn't play him more. Um, I'm one of the people who resents the lack of opportunity for youth team players and the over-generosity of opportunity for expensive players who aren't achieving. Uh, I think that Timo Werner has a wonderful attitude when we have the ball. I think he has a wonderful reading of the game and is running off the ball when we have the ball. And I think uh, he's made a lot of goals and won a lot of penalties, which for some reason in this stupid Opta uh, statistical um, 
make up winning penalties that are scored aren't counted as assists, morons. Um, and and um, I think that he's been more successful than people have given him credit for. But I think Tammy was more successful than people give him credit for. And he got a lot of good goals and he scored some big goals in big games. I think that Tammy's struggles partly came through two injuries that, that one was at home to Arsenal in his first season, Frank Lampard's um, full season, when he actually won a corner but ran into the Matthew Hardy end wall and injured his ankle. And that kept him... It, that wasn't right from about till three months. And that really ended his season. And he got 15 goals that season. If that hadn't have happened, he'd have had a 20-goal season. Uh, and we scored from the corner, by the way. That's pretty quite a header. Um, and then last season... Uh, was it against Newcastle where he broke through into the penalty area early on? And I think that was something that became a little bit negative about his game. He looked to win the penalty, he stepped across the centre half and looked to win the penalty, run just lashing the ball into the net uh, when he was through. And he did that ankle again. And he was out for ages. It just wasn't right for ages. And if you remember when Thomas Tuchel came, he had a spell out uh, where his ankle was causing all sorts of problems. It was a Thomas Tuchel game, actually. It was an early Thomas Tuchel game. Yeah, it was the Wolves by the bridge. No, it was Newcastle. Oh, was that one? Oh, Newcastle. the one, yeah. And, and um, so, so uh, he had misfortune there, but, but, but he would have been our, I mean, he was our equal top scorer anyway last season, but he'd been our top scorer by a mile if he'd have played. So, yeah, I, I love him. I love him. And I, I, I'm very sad that it's worked out but the way it has. But at the same time, I do feel that after two years, he was still the same player he was at the beginning of it. And I don't think his movement improved in the penalty area as much as it needed to. I don't think his left foot improved in front of goal as much as it needed to, nor his heading. But I think he was a quality presence and a quality player. And I'm very unhappy that he's left. And I'm now in the really shadow situation and I want everybody to feel sympathy for me that the two cats I got a year ago uh, just over a year ago July last year two uh, that they, they were they weren't kittens anymore they, they've been uh, they've been kicked out of some home and they were about 10 months old when we got them two lovely black cats and we called them Tammy and Tamori and they're both in bloody Italy now I'm thinking of getting a third one and calling it Trevor, but that would probably be the kiss of death for him. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, with the, with the buyback clause as well, though, Neil, in, in, in the contract for 80 million euros becoming active in June 2023, is obviously still a small chance that if he is a major success in, those, in the first two seasons at Roman that we could bring him back. Uh, just a last word on Tammy. I haven't talk- spoken to him, but if I had... I would have said, don't go to Roma because <laughs> think, Jose Mourinho yeah. loves the finished article and you need to develop. So do you think he, do you think, I'll ask my next question, do you think he'll struggle at Roma under Jose or do you think he'll learn a lot and improve his game? I don't think Jose is the coach to get the best out of somebody who's not yet the best. Yeah, no, that's fair yeah. enough. I, I, I do think he'll score goals at, at Roma, but there's obviously there's a big pressure being the main striker now, you know, following in the likes of, you know, Toffee, Dzeko. Tammy's fine in the spotlight. Mm. Don't worry about that. Tammy's yeah. fine, top in the bill. 
you know, he came through with Dominic Solanke. He was the same year as Dominic Solanke. And all the way through Chelsea's academy, Dominic was ahead of him. Dominic had great movement, very intelligent centre forward. But in the end, only one loved the spotlight and only one wanted to top the bill. And that was Tammy. And, and I can't overemphasise how important that is. Um, and and uh, Dominic's at Bournemouth now, isn't he? And, and um, it didn't go well at Liverpool. I'm, no. I, mean, I don't yeah, know if anyone's seen him, Dominic. Yeah, because he, he, he won. But he's uh, the same flipping size as Tammy. Yeah. He's, 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 they've both grown. They're both wonderful, wonderful Yeah, because he obviously come through the, the youth team with Tammy, etc. And he yeah. obviously he went on to win the under-20s World Cup. He was a successful yeah, part of that. Then he got his big move to Liverpool. That just didn't work out at all. Then he, again, a fairly big money move to Bournemouth. And that didn't really do a lot either. And he's no. kind of just kind of just faded away. But yeah, George, so what were you going to say, mate? I was just saying, with, all, with, all, with everything being said, uh, Neil, about the number nine and the, the change under Thomas Tuchel, what, what are your aspirations about this season? Then? Because uh, well, for I, me personally... I, I, I just, just to bring it back to the balance of the team... Uh, our hands are tied because we've only got one number eight in the squad. Mm. Mason Mount's the only midfielder, out-and-out midfielder in the squad. You could say Mateo Kovacic is one, but he doesn't make a goal or score a goal, so he's essentially a number six. Do you think um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek can, can do something this season as part of the squad? Well, he hasn't yet. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know... If you look at Ruben's assets, what are they? Size, pace, um, pace, his physicality. Yeah, it's yeah. attacking space. Mm. That's his biggest asset. You know, I once had a private conversation with Michael Essien. Uh, and, and we were talking about his best position. And I said, well, in a 4-3-3, you know, you've got too much energy to be the number six too much drive but you're not really a number eight you know you don't create around the penalty area that's not your style uh and i said the best i've seen you play in a 4-3-3 has always been at right back and yet you never start two games in a row at right back you go there when we're losing and you change the game on your own you start the next game there, but somehow you never, he never started two games in a row at right back for us. And I said, if you were, if you were given seven games in a row there, you'd learn the defending because you're an intelligent footballer and you'd be Cafu. You'd run a game from right back. And he said, I think it is my best position in a 4-3-3 because my best position is where I can attack space. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that brilliant? That's a footballer talking. It's not my best position. I'm a number eight or I'm a number six or I'm a seven or a seven. My best position is where I can attack space. Ruben's best position is where he can attack space. He is not a central midfielder, therefore, because there is no space. He, he can't get on the ball. He's not a natural tracker backer. Uh, he, he's, he, uh, his best, his, probably his best season in top-class football was his loan at Crystal Palace where Roy Hodgson played him wide left in a 4-4-2. But obviously he was coming off that flank and, 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 and uh, affecting the game from there. But where he can attack space. And, and uh, no, I don't think he's a midfielder myself. In, a, in, in the way we play, be 
I don't know what he'd be. I don't really think there's a role for him, to be honest, in the way we play. Possibly as a number six. When we used to play 4 2 3 1 in the, uh, when he was coming up through the academy, he'd be in the two. He wouldn't be the number 10. He's not a, he's not a natural player ahead of the ball. Who was the manager who wanted to play him centre forward? Oh, sorry. Was Wasn't that sorry played him centre forward? No, I think it was Conte. Oh, Conte, Conte did, yeah. Jose played him number 10. Hmm. Uh, it was Sari played him more in midfield because Sari played four three three, and he, he came in when Kanto wasn't fit and things like that. Yeah. But um, yeah, but no, so I don't see him as a number eight myself. But in terms of Chelsea, uh, your aspirations for the title, um, because I think from my personal perspective, that's what I would like to see at least you know close the gap. But is it is it really too much to ask at this stage with Manchester City and what they're doing, or? What are your thoughts on Chelsea in this season? Uh, I, every year on our radio station, we do uh, all the presenters do their predictions for the top four. And my predictions year were first, Chelsea, get in there. Uh, <laughs> second, I think I put Manchester United. Third, City and fourth, Liverpool. Was, I think was from memory is what I did. Um, uh, I think that the khaki changes everything. Yeah. Uh, I think a centre forward for Manchester City would change everything. But I also think that City are just getting into that. Fernandinho is a year older. Rodri's not quite a top, top player. I don't think they've got the right makeup there. Uh, and, um, uh, and Zinchenko's OK as a left back, but Mendy is appalling. Uh, and uh, I, I just, it's not quite, I don't think City's quite got it right yet uh united did you see that um fa youth cup tie when we won the youth cup for four or five years consecutively and we went out for four one at united and mason greenwood got a hat trick jesus he is a good player he is a seriously good player i think that Cavani can't play a season at centre-forward. I think Martial's not good enough. I've got a horrible feeling that Mason Greenwood is. Um, and, and, uh, and the thing is, the irony is, is that for all their big money spending at United, they do support a youngster in a way that Chelsea maybe could still learn from. And, and, uh, and uh, I, I think they will come above City as well. I, I think it's... A, and Liverpool... I just want to say this about Liverpool. We all know that Alisson and Van Dijk were incredible buys and, and turned them into a, a, a great team. Um, but I don't think in this country, for some reason, enough respect is given to a player who I consider one of the greatest players in the world, and that's Mohamed Salah. And... and I can't understand what happened to Mohamed Salah at Chelsea. It really irks me. Uh, first of all, he's a lovely geezer. He came over here and he did, he learned English quickly. He did everything right. But he'd always been in the first team. Of course, he gets over here and he's not in the first team. And there wasn't a lot of love going around the squad at that stage. Um, uh, and, and he just lost his way. And, and rather than trying to help him find his way, he was just moved on in the same way as Kevin De Bruyne was. And, and, and I think Mohamed Salah, who is a 20, 30, 
occasionally 40 gold a season player is one of the best players in the world and because he goes off and plays his international football in Egypt we don't maybe see as much of him on the international stage as we do uh, of the European players or even South American players he is the real deal so it, it you know we've got an ex-Chelsea player at Liverpool the real deal an ex-Chelsea player at Man City the real deal and a load of Chelsea players filling up the squad at Manchester United and Matic and Mata and, and uh, Luke Shaw, um, who uh, actually failed his trial when he was, I think, uh, 11 years old when he tried to get into the Chelsea squad, um, who grew up in uh, Molsey, of course, in Surrey, uh, with a, as a Chelsea season ticket holder. Um, so uh, I do think it's between those four. And I do think that with Lukaku, we're the best placed, but I would like us to sign another quality number eight, creative number eight, and give the manager more options of how to play. And then, but I still think I come back to where I began. We're a back three because of, I mean, I don't know what you thought of the last month, two months of the season and the Euros, but it was like Andreas Christensen flicked a switch and went from being a boy to a man. I mean, it was just remarkable. And and um, I think one of the most important games of last season was West Ham away, which, if remember, we had to win to go above West Ham in the race for number four. And we went there, and Thomas Tuchel pulled one out the hat there. I, I mean, a real shock in that he played Christensen on the right of the back three, Thiago Silva in the middle, and put Aspie as the right wing back. And... Uh, I think we struggle with Aspie in the back three playing out from the back uh, because he and Tony Rudiger aren't natural playing out from the back players. But when you've got Christian St. Antiago Silva in the back three, I think Tony Rudiger looks twice the player playing out from the back because just the ball zaps around faster. It's played one touch, two touch. Uh, and because it's zapped around faster, he gets space and he suddenly becomes the marauding dribbler. Uh, when that space comes along. And we just look a much better team. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of Aspie at right wing back this season. Yeah, just to, I have to agree with you on Christensen. I was a little bit, I'm sure George was the same as well, a little bit unsure on him. You know, he'd, he'd obviously been one that had come through the ranks. He'd looked very good in the youth team, etc. But I remember uh, John Terry always saying that Christensen would make it as a top, as a top professional. And... It, it obviously, I think he's proven a lot of Chelsea fans wrong. I think he would have been someone that would have that people would have been very happy to move on. But as you say, under Tuchel, last couple last couple of months, the Euros, I thought he was outstanding in the Champions League final as well. He's, he's really he's really come yeah. on, and he probably now I'd have to say is one of the first names on the team sheet in that back three. So it just goes to show, like the patience we've shown there with Christensen in, in previous years, I think he would have been another one that would have just been mm. moved on. So that patience there has definitely paid off. Well, I'm, I'm, I think two things are worth saying here. Uh, one is, can we go back to the second goal against Crystal Palace, uh, which was the Pulisic goal? Uh, if, if you... It's, it's, it's on the Chelsea website, the whole game, so you can watch it. Uh, if, you, if you run it back, do you know it's 40 passes over one minute, 42 seconds? 40 passes in which... Palace don't touch the ball over one minute, 42 seconds. Now, at the death, they did touch the ball because Mason Mount crossed it and Guaita parried it and Pulisic put it in. But it, but but from 
the first pass to Mason crossing it. It was 40 passes. Now, it started with a long ball up the field and just some deft touch and movement by Christensen to keep possession. There were, in those 40 passes, I think two passes by Christensen out to the right, one to Epiliqueta and one to Mason, which actually led to the goal. And there was another by Chaloba out to the right as well. And we were playing really quality football from the back. We were helped by the fact that Crystal Palace released 15 players, including Gary Cahill, uh, at the end of last season and went from being a, a, a stubborn bottom-of-the-table Premier League team to a see-you-in-league-one-in-two-years team. But, but um, uh, they, they, uh, it, was, it was a wonderful, wonderful goal uh, for possession football and, and, and for playing the right way. It was real good movement of the ball, and Palace could not live with it. But it opened up in the end with Christensen playing a really well-struck, lovely pass out to Mason Mount. He played the one-two with Apoliqueta and Cross. And Guaita, by the way, couldn't hold it because Timo Werner was on him. And Timo Werner deserves praise on that goal. But Pulisic, again, scored inside the six-yard box. He is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I think... Um... I mean, I haven't, I haven't actually watched the the game back. I saw the highlights, but I mean, that's you know the the, the forty passes, and it's that's that's what we want to see. Um, and yeah, it, like Charlie said, I think going back to that number eight, I think bar you know your prediction. I mean, great positivity that we've got two people out of the three predicting Chelsea for the league, so that's uh, all positive. But you know, in terms of your uh, analysis, there, I mean, it was that's the kind of football we want to see at Stamford Bridge, and. Um, I, I'm conscious for time, Neil, but I think we, what we what we always do is conclude today's show with the questions from from the fans, and we've had a larger than usual amount. So, um, if you wouldn't mind, we'll get we'll get the best that we can through, and as you know, try and answer this question as much as possible. Far away, so Charlie has it. Yeah, yeah, far right. away to Neil. Yeah, Bartley, we'll just we'll just, we'll just fire through a few of these. Um, let me just get them now. Um, first one, Neil. Who's been your favourite manager um, of the Roman Abramovich era? Try my favourite and least favourite because it's probably the same. Yeah, person. let's go with both. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jose. Jose, first time round. Look, I, I, yeah. I, I have this theory—not this theory, this experience. I, I first worked with Chelsea from 1986, so I was, I was working from 1986 to 2018. I believe that uh, a lot of people, loads and loads of people, have enhanced our football club, but very few people have changed it. Uh, in the 60s, when I was a kid supporting, Tommy Doherty changed it. He dragged us into the 1960s. And it was him who it was him who changed our kit from blue tops, white shorts, blue socks to blue, blue and blue shorts and white socks. And that is the Chelsea identity uh, and has been ever since. Um, I think that uh, to a certain extent, Eddie McCready changed it in the 70s. Uh, when we were completely broken, he brought in all the kids and, and got us back into the top flight. And then in the 80s, John Neal and Ian McNeil changed it uh, by bringing in all those players uh, um, that got us promotion in 1984 uh, and starting taking us basically from the depths of going into Division Three to, to the top six 
top uh, in Division One. Ken Bates changed it when he took over in 1982, and he turned us into uh, a completely different identity. Um, and he also, uh, over the years, which he's not given enough credit for, got us back to sexy football. Uh, to a certain extent in the Kerry Speedo Pat era, but more in the Rude Hullet era. And, and uh, we really, we did move, we changed a lot. Glenn Hoddle and Rude Hullet changed it. Uh, Glenn Hoddle, by the way we played football and the kind of people he could attract, Rude Hullet, just, just by being who he is, just by everything that he did within our... He turned us into a world identity. Roman changed it, probably more than anybody else, obviously, but Jose changed it. Jose changed our club. And I've said this several times, but I'm going to say it again because it's just so important. At his first press conference, the famous, I'm not of a bottle, I'm a special one, which, which has lived with him ever since, he said other things that were just so much more important but weren't so marketable for the media. And, and remember, we'd just come up four years of Claudio Ranieri telling us that we weren't favourites to win any trophy. We didn't win anything under Claudio, though he deserves massive credit for building the team that Jose took over uh, and finished off. But Jose said in that first press conference that he thought he had the players to win the league. And he said... When I leave this club, I want to have changed the identity and I want that identity to be winners. That was the most important thing he said in that press conference. And I, I saw a bit of hair then. My hair rose on the top of my head uh, to its ends. And I tell you, when we lifted that Champions League under Thomas Tuchel, there was still a little bit of me remembering Jose saying, I want the identity to be winners because that's what it's been ever since. However good we are, however bad we are, we are winners. Oh, Tottenham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. I think Jose is my, my favourite manager. Um, I know he divides opinion, but as I say, like the squad that he assembled in those first two years, some of the football we played was absolutely fantastic. I know, George, you probably feel pretty similarly that Jose, love him or hate him, he has revolutionised Chelsea for sure. Yeah, I can't sum it up any more than, than you two have just said. I mean, a, a full house for me. Jose Mourinho is my, my favourite manager of, of, all, of all time at Chelsea Football Club for sure. Uh, uh, next one, Neil. Who, who was your favourite player to interview and why? <laughs> <laughs> so many, so many. Um, just so many. There, there wasn't one. Um but uh, <laughs> I, I want to start off by putting one name out of the hat that people shouldn't forget. And that is my still good mate, Joe Allen, at New, uh, uh, who's, who's living back up at Newcastle. He only played a handful of games for us back in 1992, 93. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I did a tour of the States with uh, Chelsea American fans. And I, I, uh, I did his joke. I nicked his joke. He was Joe Allen should never have been a footballer. He should have been a stand-up comedian. <laughs> and I nicked his joke, and I did it in every venue we went to. And it, it always got a massive laugh, except when we got to New York, uh, when everyone looked at me and said, how could you say that? 
and and the line was such a shame, such a shame. If Tony Cascarino had had nine, uh, six shots at John Lennon, he'd still be alive. But of course, Lennon was shot in Central Park. Oh, <laughs> Dakota Building's just outside Central Park, New York. And uh, New Yorkers didn't take to it. Uh, uh, yeah, you got to learn to choose your audience, don't you? But uh, Joe Allen is just Joe Allen phoned me uh, during summer, uh, and it was a phone. It just came up as a number, and he says, "I've got a new number." I said, uh, all right, so I'll save it. He says, you had to get rid of the other one. He says, I was getting so much abuse. I said, why were you getting abuse? He said, I did the playoff game with Sunderland when they lost the playoffs because they're in the League One playoffs last season. And uh, he said, and there was rioting at the end of the match. He said, and uh, I saw this guy throw a pound coin on the pitch. Uh, and I said, do you know what? He said, I don't know if that was an act of hooliganism or if it was a genuine takeover bid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's, he should have been a comedian. Um, but uh, so he's always, he, but seriously, I mean, I, I when Club Call started, obviously I started Chelsea Club Call, but I also was doing QPR Club Call and Wimbledon Club Call. I did three Club Calls at the same time. Uh, and the first Wimbledon Club Call I did, which was a year after the others, in 1980, summer 1987, so the season that they went on to win the FA Cup, uh, they were away on pre-season. I went down to the club to do my very first interview and just see who was down there and who I could get. And they had a 19, 20-year-old player who had, I think, broken his wrist uh, and had it bandaged and couldn't go off with the team on the summer tour. And I remember sitting on the steps and it was probably the first recorded interview he'd ever done. And his name was Dennis Wise. So, I, I mean, you know, you you have these relationships that just go on and go on. Uh, and and, um, and it's, it's, you know, and a lot of these people, they kind of turned into friends as they got older rather than when they were players because, because, um, because I'm older. But, you know, whether it's, whether it's, John Terry, Frank Lampard, uh, Didier, uh, just all of them. I, I mean, uh, I loved them all. I didn't have a favourite. Jimmy Floyd, all of them. Yeah, I can imagine it's quite it's quite hard to pick. Yeah, we'll just we'll, we'll squeeze in a couple more. Um, what's the best match you've ever witnessed? And do you have a favourite match or goal? I'll just quickly step in on this one. I have to say that one of probably the best match I've ever been to was Chelsea versus Bar Frank Rijkaard's Barcelona Stamford Bridge. <laughs> Four two. Um, the 4-2 game. Um, I'd have to say the best goal I've probably ever seen. I've been to a lot of Chelsea games over the years. The best goal, Ronaldinho's goal, where yeah. the ground was just stunned. It was silent as if I oh, did that actually. It was up in. there. Yeah. It was up there. Uh, other goals, I'd have to pick out uh, FA Cup semi-final 97, Wimbledon, Zola's goal. I still don't know how he did that trick when he was running. Uh, he, he never, ever changed the stride and he managed to backheel the ball uh, and turn and take a touch and put it in the goal. Monkey, you said afterwards uh, about Dean Blackwell, who was the defender. Uh, Paul Lance got twisted blood, which is the first time I'd heard that phrase. Um, uh, that's one of my all-time favourite goals. But I mean, I, I think uh, I think you get really underrated goals when they're very important. Uh, so I don't think enough is made of Di Matteo's goal in the FA Cup final in 97. And I don't think enough is made of Drogba's goal in the Champions League final in 2012. Mm. And, and, and I, I, I know it was just a header from a corner, but I, I've never quite felt 
like I felt about that goal in any other goal, which was at the same time going absolutely mad because we've got an equaliser two minutes from time. And yet at the same time going, well, it's Didio. What did anybody expect? Two minutes from time and you get, it's a big game. You get an equaliser. Of course we, and it was almost, I, I kind of almost felt we were going to score from that corner or he was going to score from that corner. It was just, it was, it was sensational. But I go back in the 1960s where the FA Cup was probably more important than the league. And we won the league in 55 and we'd never won the FA Cup. In, in 66, uh, in the third round, we won at Liverpool. And that, the highlights of that game are still available. Uh, Liverpool scored early on through it. I can't remember. I think Roger Hunt. Uh, Bobby Tamling headed the equaliser, which he never lets me forget that he got a header in the, uh, uh, at Liverpool. Uh, no, Ozzy, sorry, scored the equaliser. And Bobby Tamling headed the winner. Uh and we get drawn in the fourth round against the runners-up the previous year. So Liverpool were the winners. And that was Leeds. Dirty Leeds. And, and um, we scored after about seven, eight minutes. Bobby again. George Graham had a hit the post and Bobby Tamling put it in. And they then attacked for the remaining 84 minutes. And they just cut through us and cut through us and cut through us. And my all-time hero, Peter Bonetti, just made save after save after save. Uh, and, and he is the smallest goalkeeper I've ever seen play for Chelsea and the only goalkeeper I've seen who dominates his penalty area as much as Bonetti did is Edward Mendy. I think Czech's our best ever goalkeeper, uh, but even he didn't dominate the penalty area like Mendy and the cap did. And in the very last seconds of that game against Leeds, when uh, they had a corner, and he actually caught it right up against the 18-yard line, coming off his line in the corner, because he just, he, he was he was different. He was different. Uh, so, you know, I've got, in 1970s, uh, when Liverpool were European champions and we just got promoted back up the Ray Wilkins team, we beat them 4-2 uh, with, a, I think, uh, uh, Clive Walker killed uh, Joey Jones that night, uh, that day, and the, I think uh, Tommy Langley and uh, Jack Finison were on the shortest score sheet as well. Uh, you know, and you can just go through uh, uh, my favourite 80s game. We beat Liverpool again 3-1 and Kerry absolutely destroyed Alan Hansen that day. And then, of course, in the 90s, Liverpool again when we came back from 2-0 down in the Rude Hullet team and beat them 4-2. So I've, I've kind of got one every decade, but I'll certainly take the Barcelona one and, and Bayern Munich. By yeah. And I just want to give one more shout out. We'll never, ever go back and accept it. But the Champions League final against Manchester United, until we lost the penalty shootout, was one of the best quality games I've mm -hmm. seen in my life. We were the two best teams in the world that year, Chelsea and Manchester United. And I thought that was a top, top game, which we were so unlucky not to win because both Lance and Didier hit the woodwork. Um, and uh, it, it, I've never seen it again because of the, the shootout, but it was a great game. Yeah, it was, it was full of top quality. Um, I'll just pick one more because I'm obviously conscious of time. There's a lot to pick through, so sorry if we haven't managed to get through them all, guys. Um, Neil, last one. Obviously, a guy that's kind of well known to Chelsea fans is a bit of a, it's a bit of a laugh behind the scenes. What is it like, sort of being in and around Bill McCulloch, the the club masseur? <laughs> um, obviously, a nightmare. <laughs> um, 
can we just say that uh, I mean, obviously, I made a lot of film with with Billy when he was at the peak of his um, uh, asking about, uh, and he was telling some absolutely shocking jokes. Although the best joke, the one about Petrček catching the yeah, uh, oh, baby yeah. Uh, yeah. when there was a fire, the window. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, was just absolutely hilarious. But I think the most important thing to say about Bill is that he was here uh, pre-Roman and he's still here. So he's good at his job. And it's very easy to talk about him as, as the clown and the, and the personality who, who, um, who everybody laughs at or with. Mm. But I think, I think it's not recognised enough that he has spanned the generations and he has done a flipping good job as a club phys- uh, as a club master. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I have to agree. I mean, he's, there's, there's been some great laughs. As said, the Petr Cech one, um, obviously, firstly, very good at his job. But also, I remember another one where down, at, I think it might have even one of the first years at Common, or it could have even been at the old Har- uh, old Harlington training ground, were the ones where he's in a bath and they're chucking fish in at him. Uh, that's, 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 that's always a... <laughs> Always a good one. But yeah, George, um, can't obviously answer, go through all the questions. So again, I say thanks for sending them in, everyone. Obviously, Go on, give me one more. Give me oh, one we'll more. Give, we'll give you one more. We'll give you one more. Um, let's go with this one. Starting more topical, would you like to see Chelsea sign Declan Rice? No. No. Fair. Absolutely not. How many <laughs> midfielders do you want who never score a bloody goal? How many midfielders do you want who never actually make the final pass? If we had five brilliant number eights and no number six, I'd want to sign Declan Rice. He's a he's a great West Ham player. I'm not convinced he's a top four player yet, uh, but I don't see enough of him. I don't want to say he's not. I love him because of his Chelsea affiliations. Of course I love him. Um, but, but, uh, oh God, you're getting me going again. Look, <laughs> one of the worst games I've seen recently uh, was the England-Italy game in the final of the Euros. And the reason for that was that England are tactics. We never engaged their midfield. Everyone kept saying, oh, you've got to get on to um, Chiellini uh, and Bonucci because they're old men. But nobody said, you've got to get on to Jorginho because if you don't, he'll pass you to death. And if you do, you might run off him. And Jorginho and Verratti never gave the ball away in that game. They were absolutely sublime. And Rice and Phillips didn't often find an England shirt. Uh, So um, we got Kante. We got the world's best player in that position. Please, please. Kante is our absolutely unarguable world-class player. Yeah, for sure. Just last thing on Declan Rice before we wrap wrap the show up, Neil. Um, did you have any idea he was going to be any? Did you have much? Did you see much of him as he was coming through the ranks at Chelsea? No, no, he was fourteen. When, he was fourteen when he left. I didn't really know who he was. No. Um, I, obviously, Frank wanted to bring him back. That was clear. I don't think the academy was too pleased having let him go at 14 at the idea of buying him back. And, and I'm not sure how serious the uh, um, intentions have been since. Um, although, 
Thomas Tuchel has obviously been very aware of the fact that that we don't have a lot of height in the squad. In the Premier League, you can get undone with without height. But Romelu Lukaku will improve that hugely. Um, and and I think uh, I think if um, if you play Christensen on the right side of a back three, you kind of get an extra bit of height in there. If you can include, I think you can include Thiago Silva as height. Uh, uh, so I think that makes a difference. Um, but um, uh, so I think that's becoming less of an issue. Look, Declan Rice is a good player uh, and he's a great story. But really, we need number eights, not number sixes. I promised I'd get this one in, Neil, for someone just uh, very quickly. It has to be quick fire. But um, if, you, if there was one Premier League great uh, that you would have loved to have seen play for Chelsea, who would it be and why? <laughs> uh, I mean, George Best, obviously, uh, who wanted to play for Chelsea uh, so that he could go to all the bars with Alan Hudson. Um, <laughs> an Aussie. Uh, um, uh, but... Really, um, uh, I mean, if I think of the best players against Chelsea uh, down the years, obviously George Best. Uh, in the 70s, we weren't in the top flight. And at Colin Bell, Manchester City in the 70s. In the 80s, I mean, Russia, Russian Dalglish, I suppose, but I wouldn't have wanted them at Chelsea. In the 90s, you've got to say that the player who destroyed us year in, year out was Alan Shearer. Uh, I, did, I did think that pre his injury in 97, uh, at the end of a game against Chelsea uh, at Goodison Park in the pre-season tournament, um, he, he was exceptional. Uh, and in the 2000s, um, Cristiano, but would I have wanted him at Stamford Bridge? Uh, and and in the latter years, we had them, Kevin, Mohammed, and we let him go. There you go. You heard it from Neil first. Um, so that, that brings up full time on another episode of the Blues Brothers podcast. Um, a huge thank you to the fans, firstly, for your questions, constant support as well. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this one. Thank you also to you, co-host Charlie, as always. Um, but last but not least, huge thank you to you, Neil, um, for your time and discussing our favourite topic, Chelsea FC. Um, some serious analysis and really insightful stories there. Um, and we're, we're really, we really are grateful. And this will certainly be one of the classic episodes in the archive for us going forward. So just a huge thank you to you. And thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for not asking me who my favourite referee was because I wouldn't have found one. <laughs> nah. <laughs> Cheers, Neil. Thanks a lot. Nice one, guys.